0: Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. This podcast is a member of the History Podcasters Network. If you get the chance, go down to www.historypodcasters.com. There you will find some links to some other great history podcasts, and also some features such as the History Collage Project. It really is worth a visit, and I encourage you to go there. So, anyway, on with the show. Chapter 95, Constantine's Boys. It's the year 337 AD, and the Roman Empire is being ruled over by one of its greatest and most successful emperors. Constantine the Great has been on the throne for 31 years and is respected, if not loved, by everybody. Unfortunately, for the last three months, the Great Emperor has been a little bit too dead to do the job properly. The fact that the Empire kept going through these times showed how much difference Diocletian and Constantine's reforms had made. Each Augustus or Caesar had a Praetorian prefect who was a bit like an assistant emperor and was very powerful. Below the prefect were vicars who were in charge of each diocese. Below the vicars were the provincial governors, usually known as consularis or praesies. Below these people were loads of government officials, tax collectors and other administrators who actually ran the empire. The emperor, helped by a group of advisors, gave orders and issued edicts about important things and of course controlled the army but wasn't really needed for the day-to-day running of his domains. In late 337, the army had eventually had enough of being ruled by a dead man, and declared, probably with some suitable nudging by Constantine's most able son Constantius, that they would only accept the joint rule of the three sons of the great emperor. Constantius was the only one of the three who was in Constantinople, as he was the Caesar of the East. He behaved in a wonderfully statesmanlike manner, organising his father's funeral and giving the old emperor a great sign-off, one of which he would have been immensely proud. Constantius led the funeral procession. After him came many ranks of the finest soldiers and then the body itself still in its gold coffin. Constantine was buried in a mausoleum which he had designed for himself. He was surrounded by twelve other coffins to represent the twelve apostles. When he was alive, he had often called himself the equal of the apostles, now he was dead, it seemed that he had got a little bit too big for his boots, and was showing himself to be more important than them. Whatever his burial arrangements, he was definitely dead and buried, and the empire had to carry on without him. As soon as his father was safely in the ground, Constantius moved towards asserting political dominance. A rumour was started that a piece of parchment had been found clenched in Constantine's fist that accused his two half-brothers, Dalmatius and Julius Constantius, of having had him poisoned, this was clearly an absolute whopping fib, but a rumour is as good as the truth when you want to get rid of people, and Constantius had both of his uncles executed. Then he had the husbands of his two aunts executed. Then he had Julius Constantius' eldest son executed. Then he had Dalmatius' sons, the two Caesars, Dalmatius and Hannibalianus, executed. The only male relatives of Con- Constantine left alive were small children. One son of Constantine's sister, and Julius Constantius's two very young sons, Gallus and Julian. It seems Constantius really meant business. Constantine's three sons met in Pannonia in the summer of 338 and divided up the empire between them. Constantine II, the younger Constantine, kept lands over which he had reigned as Caesar, Britain, Gaul and Spain. Constans got Italy, North Africa, the Danube provinces and Macedonia, and Constantius II, as he became, ended up with the eastern provinces, including Egypt and Thrace. It's very likely that all three had played their parts in the massacre of their relatives. Constans was only 14 when he became Augustus, so he was supposed to be under the protection of Constantine II, but the younger Constantine wasn't happy. He was the eldest brother, and thought himself to be the most important. He was annoyed that Constans had more territory than he did, and so, a couple of years later, demanded that he hand over some of the African provinces. Constans agreed, but this still wasn't enough for the greedy elder brother and he demanded some more. Constans was just becoming an adult and he refused the extra demands. In 340, Constantine II decided to take what he wanted by force and he marched into Italy. Constans was in Dacia, the new Dacia that is, and sent some of his breast troops to deal with the invasion, saying he would follow later with more men. He didn't actually have to do this, as Constantine was killed in an ambush near Aquileia. Flavius Claudius Constantinus, Constantine II, died aged just 24, having been an Augustus for three years. His little brother took control of all of his territory. Constantius took no part in the quarrel between his two brothers. He was busy fighting the Sassanids and their new king, the II. Constantius was a pretty good general, and the Romans were mostly successful eventually winning a large battle at Narsara, where Sharpo's brother was killed. Records are very sparse about what happened in the next ten years. There were the usual barbarian raids along the Rhine and the Danube, but they seemed to have been kept at bay. Constantius was often busy with the Persians. There are a few reports that survive about the behaviour of the youngest son, Constans. The governor of Pannonia described him as a minister of unspeakable cruelty, so it doesn't seem that the young Constans was very nice at all. He began his reign quite well, taking on the Franks and going to put down some barbarian uprising in Britain, but he soon got bored of the work. Apparently, he wasn't much interested in running his very large part of the empire, and a bit like party boy Lucius Ferris would rather be having fun. He was, though, the son of Constantine the Great, and it took ten years of bad rule over the West for the people to get fed up with him enough to start a rebellion. In January 350, the people were finally fed up enough. An officer called Magnentius was proclaimed emperor in Gaul. The armies of Magnentius marched on Constans, who was partying at the time. He fed for his life, but was captured and executed. He was only 27, and had been a terrible emperor for a surprisingly long 13 years. Constantius II had been perfectly happy to stand by and watch one of his brothers killing the other but he was not going to stand for outsiders joining in, and he gathered up the eastern armies. Alone among the sons of Constantine, he had some significant ability, and certainly a decent amount of political savvy. The remaining legitimate emperor realised he would need to have some imperial presence in the east, so he raised his cousin Gallus to the rank of Caesar. Gallus, one of the very few to have escaped the massacre of the imperial family, had grown up and now was in his early 20s. Constantius then attacked Magnentius' forces and crushed the usurper in a very bloody battle outside Merza on the Danube. His army overran Italy and then Gaul, leaving Magnentius nowhere to hide. Magnentius, in despair, committed suicide in 353. From 350, Constantius II was the sole Augustus of the Roman Empire. There would continue to be only one Augustus until 364. From that time on though, except during the last years of the reign of Theodosius the Great in the late 300s, the eastern and western empires would always be divided. Meanwhile, back in Antioch, the new Caesar Gallus was going a little too far. He and his wife accused the wealthy families of Antioch of practising magic, something that the Christian Gallus thought was very wrong. He also accused them of deliberately creating a grain shortage. Before long the trials began and a load of innocent people were executed. Gallus was proving to be a cruel and slightly bonkers ruler. Constantius heard about the trials in Antioch and was suspicious of Gallus anyway, so he ordered the Caesar to meet him in Milan. At first, suspecting what was going to happen, Gallus hesitated. Constantius was too clever for him and began to hint he was about to make Gallus his co-Augustus. This was too much for the ambitious Gallus to resist and off he went towards northern Italy. Poor, silly Gallus only got as far as Pannonia before he was arrested and executed by Constantius's men. Once Gallus was killed, the officers rode at top speed to Milan, where they sought an audience with the Emperor. One of them threw Gallus's diadem, encrusted with beautiful jewels at the feet of Constantius. Constantius smiled, delighted, just as if he'd beaten some foreign army, not his own cousin and fellow Emperor. At this point in our story, we suddenly have something we haven't had for a long time. A man called Ammianus Marcellinus wrote a history of the Roman Empire from the accession of Nerva to the Battle of Adrianople, a battle which we will hear much more about in a later chapter. The last part of his history, a total of 18 books, has survived to this day. From the year 353, we have a history book which was actually written at the time by someone who saw the events he describes. This kind of invaluable resource gives us a much better view of the times of Constantius II and his immediate successors than we have had for a while. After the death of Gallus, Constantius stayed in the Western Empire for the next few years. Ammianus tells us something about how things worked in the Roman Empire of the late 350s. As we know, the empire was now run by officials. This meant the emperor didn't always know what was going on in distant parts of his territory. He only had reports from his officials, and they didn't always tell the truth. Rumours would start and people would be tried and executed based on what somebody else said. A man called Paul the Chain was particularly good at inventing evidence against people. He was called the Chain because the evidence he made up would surround a man and chain him up, making it impossible for him to escape. A general called Silvanus had helped Constantius defeat Magnentius in 353. He was rewarded with the post of army commander in Gaul. Silvanus was a Frank but was a good, honest soldier and was a Christian. He had written some letters to people, and one of these men carefully rubbed out all of the words except for Silvanus' signature. He proceeded to write letters to quite a few senior officers hinting at rebellion against Constantius, using paper which had Silvanus' signature on. Constantius heard about the letters and immediately ordered that everyone involved should be arrested. Some people protested that poor old Silvanus was innocent, and Constantius agreed to send an envoy to Gaul to seek out the truth. The envoy of the emperor arrived in Gaul, but didn't make any attempt to do his job. He just turned up and started treating everyone close to Silvanus as guilty. Soon, another letter was sent to the emperor, who ordered an investigation. This discovered that the original letters were forgeries, and so Silvanus was definitely innocent. Another envoy was dispatched to tell him, but because of the long distances involved, he didn't get there in time. Silvanus was frightened and felt trapped. What could he do? He knew he was innocent, but thought it would never be proved. He did the only thing he thought might save him. He had his troops proclaim him emperor. He didn't have a proper purple robe, so the soldiers made him one out of small, stitched-together flags. Constantius was stunned. He sent some other officers up to pretend to be on Silvanus' side, and they slowly began to turn the soldiers against him. Ammianus says... Silvanus was dragged out of the chapel, where he had in terror taken refuge on his way to a Christian service, and was cut to ribbons by their swords, and thus died a general of considerable merit. Poor Silvanus was not a rebel. He had not wanted to rebel. He had been forced to rebel to save himself because of a trick. Most of his friends and followers were put to death after Paul the Chain and others invented evidence against them too. Constantius II was a better ruler than most historians give him credit for. His one major weakness, and this he had in common with many of his predecessors and successors, was a tendency to believe that there were plots against him. The highly complex bureaucracy hid the emperor from many of his subjects and made him safer. It also removed him from the daily workings of his empire and thus detached him somewhat from reality. This made him nervous and mistrustful. In 355, Constantius needed to head back east, but it was clear the situation dictated he also needed to be in the west. Even Constantius, who was pretty pleased with himself most of the time, realised he couldn't be in two places at once. He needed a new Caesar. Unfortunately, he'd been personally responsible for having most of his extended family executed, so there were very few candidates. In fact, there was only one candidate, and he didn't seem to be much of a candidate at all. Flavius Claudius Julianus had been born, either in 331 or 332, the youngest son of Julius Constantius, half-brother of Constantine the Great. The boy had been exiled to Cappadocia as a child, but had been allowed to return to Nicomedia and Constantinople when he was about 18. The man, known to history as Julian the Apostate, was a scholar. He studied in Asia Minor and then in Athens, and was an expert on philosophy and many other subjects. He was a very clever man. He was also a pagan. He was supposed to be Christian, all his family were Christian, but Julian was a secret follower of the traditional Roman gods. One thing he definitely wasn't was a soldier, and he certainly didn't seem to be a potential emperor. He was short and odd-looking, with a full straggly beard, which none of the rest of his family ever had. It's written that he had twitching shoulders, but also fine eyes which were spoiled by a large mouth and sagging lower lip. All he wanted was to study, talk to the great thinkers of the day and read books. He and Constantius had only met once before as adults, before Julian was summoned to a meeting in Milan. This meeting must have been a bit strange. Julian, the only surviving member of the family, apart from the emperor himself, had to bow down before the man who had killed his father and both of his brothers. He did his best to be polite and very soon Julian was Caesar of the West. Julian, The quiet, strange bookworm surprised everyone. He enthusiastically dived into military life and, to the general shock of the people, proved to be a clever and skilful general. First the Augustus and his Caesar battled the German tribes together, and soon Constantius felt that Julian could manage on his own, and left for his first and only visit to the Eternal City. Julian fought a great band of Alamanni led by seven kings. The Caesar led his forces into battle himself, and won an amazing victory. The troops had quickly come to love Julian and they followed their orders to the letter and the orders were clever, sensible and clear. In the end, the Alamanni were crushed, losing over 6,000 men, while the Romans lost just 243. Julian kept the German tribes at bay for five years, never losing a battle. Constantius's trip to Rome really is the stuff of legend. Here, certainly, was no humble princeps. Constantius II wanted everyone to see how great he was and entered the city as part of a massive procession of troops and officials, all dressed in uniforms, clearly showing their ranks. It was almost like the celebration of a triumph. Ammianus says that the Emperor rode alone in a golden chariot, which shone with the glitter of many precious gems, and, being acclaimed by enthusiastic voices, he remained utterly still. He goes on, As if his neck was in a vice, he glanced neither to the right nor the left. Nobody knows what the people of Rome thought of this new type of emperor. Once he was back in the east, Constantius faced the greatest challenge of his long reign. Sharpor II was ready for action. He wrote a letter to the emperor. I, Sharpor, king of kings, brother of the sun and moon, send salutations, it began. Now this is pretty impressive stuff, but it gets better. It goes on. Because I delight in being fair, I shall be content to get Mesopotamia and Armenia Which your people stole from my grandfather. He says that if he doesn't get what he wants, he will take the field against you with all my armies when the winter is past. Constantius wasn't agreeing to this, so he gathered up his armies to face the attack and sent an order to Julian demanding some of his soldiers. Julian had promised his men he wouldn't allow them to be sent east, and so he was in a bit of a pickle. Julian claimed he prayed to Jupiter, who told him to agree to the will of the army. So, in 360, the army proclaimed him Augustus. Julian sent a message back to Constantius, letting him know what had happened and asking if they could have some form of joint rule. Constantius was having none of it. He flew into a huge rage and the messengers were afraid he was going to kill them. He marched towards Julian and Julian began to march towards him, both preparing for yet another civil war. Like Constantine the Great's Persian campaign though, the civil war never happened. As he was crossing Asia Minor, Flavius Julius Constantius fell ill with a fever, and on the 3rd of November 361 quickly died. Amazingly, he was still only 44 years old. He had reigned for 24 years. Nobody is too sure what to make of Constantius II. He was certainly ambitious and happy to execute anyone who got in his way. He has also been variously portrayed as clever, cruel, easily led by others, vain and unpleasant. On the other hand, most people at the time seem to have had respect for him, and he reigned for more than 20 years without any serious rebellions, so he can't have been a really bad emperor. The last thing he did showed that he cared about his empire. Even though Julian had been on his way to battle against him, Constantius knew he must leave the empire in safe hands, and in the hands of the family of Constantine. The Persians were about to attack, and the Roman world needed a leader who could stand up to them. Constantius had no sons, He and his third wife had just one daughter. As he lay dying, Constantius named his cousin Julian as his successor. Next time, we'll cover the brief, spectacular reign of Julian the Apostate. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please go down to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com If you want to ask any questions, or just leave me some feedback, then you can contact me via email History at gmail.com, or you can friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.